Well, good morning, Grumlaw family. We are so glad that all of you decided to tune in here today. And honestly, it's already been a really great morning, hasn't it? Not, not going to lie, I personally love uh, how the structure of today's service is going, where the message is all the way at the end. There's so much great stuff that has already happened in the service that it kind of just takes the pressure off of me. Uh, this is another one of these series that we're starting here today, Thriving in Babylon, that has been kind of in the think tank for years at this point. And so needless to say, I'm just a little amped up for how God is going to work in speak through this content here over these next couple of months, especially on the heels of the series that we just wrapped up. I have been so encouraged by how responsive this church community has been to the Holy Spirit. Uh, there really is, as I've been saying here throughout this year, this holy anticipation for what God is going to do in and through this faith community in 2022. And uh, he's honestly already up to some pretty great things. Many of you have shared some of those wins that are happening in your own lives. I love that. Keep moving closer to God. He will always move closer to you. So again, as already noted, this new series that we're starting today is again titled Thriving in Babylon, and it's actually going to take us all the way up to Easter. Uh, if we were to have created a subtitle for this series, it would have read a guide for how godly people can thrive in a godless culture. Uh, because the tension that every single one of us, I'm confident that we're all feeling, whether you've been at church for your entire life or maybe you're brand new and just beginning to check things out, is that culture seems to be heading in a direction probably opposite of what God had likely intended. Uh, in fact, again, even if you're new to all this and you don't really know that much about the Bible or what it means to be a follower of Jesus and all this, you probably sat back and thought at some point, I'm pretty sure if there's a God out there, this was probably not a part of the plan. In fact, that might actually be the very reason that you decided to come and check things out here today. You, you felt that and you're, you're not really sure how to navigate these uncharted waters. But, but, but here's the great news. These really aren't uncharted waters at all. In fact, this has been a tension that has existed for apparently as long as human civilization has existed. And what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to walk through the book of Daniel chapter by chapter. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dan Daniel, we find that near the end of the Old Testament, which is kind of the first half of the Bible. And in large part, as the title would probably tip us off to, it tells the story of a guy who went by the name of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we're provided a roadmap of how we can not only survive in this world, but thrive. Because as you're going to see through the life of Daniel, he did not just endure this world, he influenced it. He didn't just survive, he thrived. The book of Daniel is quite literally a guide for every follower of Jesus in all of human history for when you find yourself a part of a culture that seems to be shifting underneath your feet, headed into uncharted waters that you don't know how to navigate. Here in the book of Daniel, here's the playbook to not just endure it, but influence it to not just survive, but thrive. Hopefully that piques the interest of at least a couple of you. If not, I'm super excited about it, so whatever. But before we dive here into part one, I wanna back this train up here just a little bit and give you a little bit of an explanation, a little more context as to why we named this series Thriving in Babylon. Because some of you, you might already be thinking to yourself, all right, I can just kind of zone out because I don't live in Babylon. I live in America, America, that's right. So you're just gonna kind of check back in here at Easter. So sit tight with us here for just a second. A little bit of background on Daniel that I'm positive will bring this text to life for all of us. The, the book of Daniel, it actually picks up when Daniel, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15, uh, biblical scholars would tell us. So this is a really young guy. 
Uh, the nation of Israel has just been defeated and conquered by the nation of Babylon. When you look into the history of the Israelites, God's chosen people, uh, it was a bit of a roller coaster to say the least. They would follow God for a season, but they'd inevitably fall away and kind of do their own thing. And, and right here in the book of Daniel, God actually allows the nation of Israel, his chosen people, to be conquered by Babylon as a result of their constant rebellion, their constant sinfulness, their constant idea that we know the right way and God, we're not going to follow you. So, so Daniel, to be clear, he grew up in a godly culture with godly parents, godly values, godly systems, godly behavior, and overnight he's thrust in the pagan nation of Babylon. In fact, we would actually classify Daniel today as a victim of human trafficking. He, along with a bunch of other people, he's removed from Israel, his home, and he's forced to walk 700 miles through modern-day Iraq, and he soon finds himself in Babylon, a part of a godless nation with godless systems and godless values and godless culture. Now, now, some of you, again, you might be thinking, all right, that's kind of a unique story, but again, that, that, that's Daniel, a story of a guy who spent a lot of time in Babylon some 2,600 years ago. What does that have to do with me? And I'm so glad you asked. The nation of Babylon, like every other nation in the history of this world, would eventually fall. But by the way, as a bit of a footnote, and I'm not just saying this to be morbid or because I'm some sort of like a doomsday prepper, but, but America too will someday fall. No nation, pick up history books, no nation lasts forever, which is why all of us should be very wary of bowing our knee to an elephant or a donkey. Bow instead to the lamb, whose is the only kingdom that continues to survive and thrive, the only kingdom that has withstood the test of time. The, the, the nation of Babylon would eventually fall somewhere around 500 BC, never to appear again. But, but what's really interesting is that all throughout Scripture, this book we call the Bible and in other history books as well, Babylon continues to be mentioned, even well into New Testament times as well, that second half of the Bible. Just one example of many that we find in the book of Revelation, which is actually the final book of the Bible, uh, the final book there in the New Testament. There it says, Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now, now, quick disclaimer, and I feel like I should probably mention this anytime we mention a passage of Scripture from Revelation. If you've ever tried to actually read the book of Revelation for yourself, and some of you hopefully have tried that, uh, you've likely thought about five to ten minutes into reading, well, I didn't know that they had shrooms back when the Bible was written. And then you probably chucked it to the side because it sounded strange or really confusing. This is important. The book of Revelation is not just a prediction about what's to come. It's actually primarily revelation about what's been happening behind the scenes for all of human history. So see, all of us that are watching right now, we experience life in the natural, what we can taste, see, smell, feel. But, but there's this whole unseen realm that Scripture clearly tells us exists, the spiritual realm that is very much affecting what is happening right now in the natural. So, so Revelation, in large part, is actually kind of peeling the curtain back for us and, and using different allegories and metaphors and stories to, to attempt to describe to us what is happening in that spiritual realm. And, and throughout the, the book of Revelation, the text tells us that Jesus will eventually come back, what we often refer to as the second coming of Christ. We're actually going to talk a lot more about that later on in this series. And, and like we see right here, defeating Babylon. Now, now, again, you might be thinking, hold up, Shay, I, I thought you said Babylon was conquered around 500 BC, so how is Jesus going to defeat what's already been defeated? It's like, come on, Jesus, you're better than that. You don't need to be taking credit for things that happened 2,000 years ago. Babylon, a, a, as we see throughout the Bible and in other history books as well, is used as a term to describe the spirit of this world. It's referring to an evil spirit that has been influencing our world and culture all throughout human history right up to present day. 
Uh, every single one of you have, have taken history classes, and, and one of the themes that you've likely picked up on among every civilization in all of human history is that eventually civilizations are undone by the very people who find themselves a part of that nation. And it's kind of like, well, what's up with that? Scripture would tell us that's Babylon, that that, that is the spirit of this world. So, so, so let me lean into this just a little bit more. What this means for the follower of Jesus is that we are never at home in this world. You might recall, we talked a lot about that in that last series better. Like Daniel, you are in exile in Babylon. You are in exile on this earth. You're simply passing through this earth. You're passing through Babylon until you eventually find yourself at your eternal home in heaven, united with God forever. But, but, but during our temporary stay on this earth as exiles, let's talk about how we don't just survive but thrive in Babylon, again, using Daniel as our playbook. Because in a matter of just 70 years, and this is so incredible, Daniel goes from being a 13-year-old victim of human trafficking to becoming the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the entire world. He did not just endure, he influenced. He didn't just survive, he thrived. So we're going to pick up here, as promised, and dive into Daniel chapter 1, uh, the story of Daniel, and again, how we thrive in Babylon. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, you just have to say those names quickly and confidently, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, now Jehoiakim, he was a terrible king who, who lived a godless life, but he happened to find himself as a king over a very godly nation, Israel. And, and it's certainly worth noting that his approval ratings were through the roof. Because as already mentioned, the nation of Israel had become very disobedient, and Jehoiakim told them whatever they wanted to hear. He was loved by men and despised by God. Now, all throughout the book of Daniel, we see three categories of people, and it 100% translates today. It's the exact same three categories that we find in our world today. It's always been this way. They're the people of Babylon, the people of God, and people of God who live Babylonian. Now, now, we celebrate around here, to be very clear, when the people of Babylon come walking through our doors every single week. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad you're starting to learn, lean in, and explore. I'm certainly thankful for the second category, the people of God, who are helping to build the local church, leaning in, and helping to lead other people closer towards him. But, but there are far more people watching right now than we would probably like to admit that fall into this third category. You claim God, but you're living with your boyfriend. You're living with your girlfriend. You claim God, but your allegiance really lies with your possessions, with your stuff. You claim God, but you do nothing to serve the local church. We see these three categories all throughout this text, and more importantly, God's attitude towards each. Continues in verse 2. It says, The Lord gave him, King Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now, the reason that this happened is back at this point in history, when one nation defeated another, it wasn't as if just those people defeated those people. It was also this attitude of, hey, when we defeat you, our God defeated yours. We defeated your God. And so what they would do is they would take these souvenirs, so to speak, back to their own temple as this reminder to everyone else, hey, like our God won. We are the victors here. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, people like me. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. He said, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. 
trained these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So the sharpest and brightest from among the Israelites, they were thrust into this Babylonian school for three years. And the purpose, don't miss this, wasn't to just educate them on the ways of Babylon, but instead to quite literally make them Babylonian. In this specific instance with the Israelites, it was a sort of like reverse evangelism social engineering project. We're going to remove all your values, your beliefs, your systems, and we're going to indoctrinate you with all things Babylonian, and it was a three-year project. In our country, it takes four years, and we pay about $120,000 for it. It continues, it says, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, etch those names in your head, were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. The indoctrination program went so far that they would actually give these college students, a bit of a Freudian slip there, new names. Which back at this point in history, names held so much more meaning, so much more influence than they do today. So their Hebrew names, that they located their identity in relation to the one true God. But the new Babylonian names repositioned their identity in relation to Babylon. I'll show you what I mean here. Just one example, though, again, it was done for every single one of these students that would enter into this indoctrination program. For instance, Daniel. His name in the original Hebrew translated, Yahweh is my judge. Yahweh being another name for God, the same God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings. His new Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, which meant treasure of Baal, one of the many pagan false gods that they would worship within the Babylonian culture. Again, they did this for all three of the guys. They did this for all the people that would enter into this indoctrination program. But, and this is really kind of a spoiler here for the entire story of Daniel, for everything that we're doing here in this series, but whatever, I can't handle it until the end. The program failed miserably with these four young men. They did not bend to Babylon. They did not compromise their faith in the godless culture that they now found themselves a part of. One of the pieces of evidence, and this is just kind of me nerding out here for a second, I found this stuff fascinating. One of the pieces of evidence that we have of this is that all throughout the book of Daniel, not one time, not one time does Daniel refer to himself by his Babylonian name. Even further, throughout Daniel, the Babylonian names, they're constantly misspelled. And scholars originally thought that this was just like a scribal error, that when the first person transliterated it, they misspelled it, and then therefore this mistake just kept living on, kept getting passed on from one scribe to the next. But listen to this. This is so awesome. Upon discovering more manuscripts, namely the Dead Sea Scrolls and other texts of these ancient manuscripts, biblical scholars discovered that these mistakes had always been there. Meaning, the writer was doing this intentionally. This is so good. It was his way of saying and sticking up his nose at this whole indoctrination program. He was intentionally saying, screw these Babylonian names. These are not working on us. The program did not work. So today, we're talking about Babylon's strategy to influence us. But next week, we're going to talk about how the follower of Jesus influences Babylon. I want to encourage you to keep coming back for this entire series, but especially next week. Now, now this is so, so important. The reason Daniel and his friends were able to withstand this program is because they were aware of the strategy. And I'm telling you, this strategy has not changed in all of human history. The strategy of Babylon has always been the same. And as we rip through this strategy, I want you to ask yourself right now, which one is most at work in my life? Not, not the person next to me, not, not a friend. Which one of these pieces of strategy of this Babylonian indoctrination program is most at work in your life right now? Number one, separation. 
Daniel and his friends were marched 700 miles away from their people and home. Why? You walk like who you walk with. My dad growing up, and especially in high school, he used to always tell me, Shay, you become who you spend your time with, or you become who your friends are. See, when you're 16 years old, and many of you probably heard similar things from your parents, you roll your eyes at that. When you get older, you figure out it's just true. I guarantee every single person who is watching right now, your most regrettable decisions were either made when you were with the wrong people or when you were alone. One of the most tragic byproducts that we have seen here in the midst of this pandemic amongst people and many, many Christians is that we are more isolated. We are more separated than ever before. Listen, I don't regularly challenge this faith community to be here every week, and I'm challenging us to do that. Like, hey, you got to be here every week. In a trend where the average churchgoer is now showing up about two out of every five weeks, I've been asking this church to buck that trend. I'm not asking you to do that or challenge you to get in groups because we're bored or because we want to brag about our numbers and be like, hey, look how many people we have showing up. No, no, no. It's because every single one of us, we've all seen the damage that separation causes. Don't miss this. People always drift from people of faith before they drift from their faith. People always drift from people of faith before they drift from their faith. So again, that separation. Number two, it's the replacement of the family. With Daniel, they removed him from his family because they knew if they wanted to deconstruct the faith that he had, that he grew up with, that they had to first remove the family that imparted that faith to him. Now, to break this down even further and more specifically, uh, the spirit of Babylon always attacks two things. One, healthy human sexuality, the, the foundational thought that God made them male and female, and two, the killing of children, which I know maybe sounds a little bit bizarre. I promise I'll explain both. Healthy human sexuality. One of the things that happened to Daniel upon arriving in Babylon, he was immediately placed underneath the chief eunuch, which meant that for Daniel, one of the first things that happened to him was gender reassignment surgery. And the spirit of Babylon always follows this pattern, attacking and God made them male and female. Number two, the second thing we see here is the killing of children. Now, for some of you, uh, that can sound really, really crazy. And if I'm actually being totally vulnerable, uh, I did a lot of research for the series. And I remember reading that for the first time and thinking, that can't be right. That just sounds so bizarre. And by the way, I want to give a shout out to my friend, Josh Howerton down in Texas. He did a very similar series and did so much research. Uh, and I tapped into a lot of that research for this particular uh, message. And it's like, oh my gosh, like this is so clear. And in fact, Bible scholars have been noting this for centuries. Let, let me explain what I mean. All the way back to the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years ago, Old Testament times, there was this God named Moloch, a, a very, very common God. And he was worshiped by burning newborn infants as a sacrifice on his altar. This is a very common practice. You, you fast forward a little bit to the time of Moses. Some of you are maybe familiar with the story of Moses. Uh, that the reason that he found his way into Pharaoh's home is because his parents were attempting to save his life. So they put him in a basket and send him down a river, hoping that maybe somebody will scoop him up and he won't be killed because there was an edict for all the males under a certain age to be put to death. Fast forward a little bit more. You get to when Jesus is born. Some of you might be familiar with this story as well. Herod's incredibly intimidated because he's hearing that the Messiah might be here. He's worried that his kingdom's going to be overthrown. He issues an edict to slaughter all baby boys under a certain age in a certain area, hoping that Jesus is going to be one of those boys put to death. Now, now, let me ask you this. How does that connect to today? We call it the American abortion industry. Now, now some of you, again, if you're new to this, maybe you're just leaning in, you're like, okay, like, that's kind of a strange coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Different nations, the same spirit, the spirit of Babylon. 
Going back to this again, this, this, this thought of the deconstruction, the replacement of family. In our particular moment in history, we are seeing the failure of men like never before. Right, right now, we, we so often, we're seeing a country trying to get the government to do what men are supposed to do. Our, our country, our world, it needs less government and more dads. More dads fulfilling their God-given biblical responsibilities. We recently held an event right here at Grumla called Guys Night, and I was so encouraged by it. Like 160 dudes showed up, and I've seen guys taking steps and leading their families like never before. So, so often the conversation in our society is we got to fix the system, we got to fix the government. By the way, these are conversations we absolutely should be having. But what I'm saying, we got to fix the dads. We fix the dads and a lot of these other issues, they're going to fall into place. Number three, indoctrination. The Spirit of God teaches us doctrine from his word from this book that we call the Bible, that the spirit of Babylon indoctrinates us with the world. This is precisely why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, which as every single one of our lives has shown us always falls short. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God transform you through his word. So, so often we take this text that we call the Bible for granted. Y'all, this is a gift for us, for human beings. I promise you it's not for God. It wasn't a text that he's like, you know, I might forget this stuff one day. No, he's not going to forget. It's for us. It is a gift to you. Every single one of us, we all want to know what God's will is for our lives. Whether you're new to church or been at your church, church thing for your entire life. It's one of the most common questions that I get from people. And if you want any chance of escaping the mold of Babylon, the mold that this world is trying to press you into, you must throw yourself into the scriptures. You must develop what could actually be called a relationship with Jesus. Indoctrination, this program by Babylon, it always goes about doing this in three ways, and i got to rip through these pretty quick. Choice architecture, repetition enforcement, and packaging. First up, Choice architecture. It's when two options are presented in order to manipulate you and lead you towards a desired outcome. For instance, a question that you might have posed to you is like, okay, are you pro-choice or are you against women's rights? And you're like, okay, well, I don't think I'm for either one of those options. Are those my only choices? Followers of Jesus don't take the bait. You can continue to uphold biblical values while still loving the people around you really, really well. Scripture, in fact, commands us to do as much. But, but don't miss this. If you accept the world's categories, you will always come to the world's conclusions. If you think as the world thinks, you'll end up living as the world lives. Number two, repetition enforcement. We're going to repeat something over and over and over again until you just believe it. Now, now, in our cultural moment, this most notably happens through social media, through hashtags. Phrases like, you do you. Love is love. Stand on the right side of history. And if you're honest, in a vacuum, they all sound pretty innocuous. You're like, yeah, I want to stand on the right side of history. I want to love the people around me well. You do you? Yeah, I want to do things that I enjoy here in this world. But, but every single one of those statements comes prepackaged with a definition of what the meaning of life is and its version of morality. It's a hidden worldview loaded into said phrase. And then thirdly is packaging. Uh, I am often a late night snacker. About 10 o'clock, for whatever reason, I'm like, I'm hungry. And I'll be honest, my go-to is just to open up the cabinet and grab something convenient. But, but more and more of late as I get older, I'm like, I just got to eat something healthier. And I'll be honest, one of the things I frequently grab for in an effort to be healthy are fruit snacks, right? Because it says right on the label, there's fruit in there. And everybody knows that fruit is healthy. 
and I'll eat a pack of fruit snacks, and then you kind of flip that label around, you figure out it's nothing but sugar and high fructose corn syrup. You're like, these are not fruit even a little bit. The label was misleading me to get me to swallow a bunch of bad things. The, the spirit of Babylon does this constantly. I'm going to give us just one example of this, and I want to challenge everyone right now, take a deep breath, because this can be such a charged idea, that this can be such a charged topic. Back in June of 2020, I gave a message on racial reconciliation, on lifting up those who are oppressed, something, by the way, that followers of Jesus absolutely should care about. Pick up and read the Bible for yourself. You see justice as a constant theme, that as a follower of Christ, it is not enough to sit back and just feel bad. We are called to be a part involved in the solution. But on that particular talk, I specifically endorsed and got involved in some language called Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, I think, and again, in a vacuum, it's a rather innocuous statement, right? Black Lives Matter, I'm pretty sure that every follower of Jesus can get behind that statement, but not necessarily the organization. And I'll fully admit that at that time, I didn't recognize that by recognizing Black Lives Matter, I was immediately associating myself with an organization. And when you peel back the packaging of the organization Black Lives Matter, not the statement, because again, Black Lives Matter is an innocuous statement in and of itself. But when you peel back the packaging of the organization, you figure out like, oh my goodness, that, that is not what I thought I was associating myself with. Now, now I'm going to read us a statement here from the Black Lives Matter website. And I want you to keep in mind, these are their words, not mine. And it's also worth noting that actually some of these statements have since been removed because it's resulted in the loss of a lot, a lot, a lot of funding. Here's what it says again from their website. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We're self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender. If you're not familiar with that term, cisgender is the idea of the God-given biological sex and God made them male and female. We dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. By the way, every follower of Jesus should be against violence against anyone. Jesus died just as much for the, for the transgender individual as he did for you and I. God makes note that we, we should all be against violence in that regard. Now, the reason they specifically cite here black trans women is this idea of this cross-sectionality of all these different avenues and lanes of oppression. And in their theory, it would say that black trans women are amongst the most oppressed individuals in our society because they are black, because they are transgender, and because they are women. It continues, it says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. What that's specifically referencing is a family with a husband and wife at the top. My point is this, not everything being done under the label of justice should be swallowed. As a follower of Jesus, we must not evaluate based on the ever-changing opinion of people, but instead on the never-changing word of God. And then number four, incentivization. The, the king looked at Daniel, looked at his three friends, and he said, listen, you guys can hold on to 95% of your beliefs as long as you'll just meet us over here on that other 5%. Listen, you can hold on to almost everything, but we just need you to compromise with this last 5%. In, in other words, you're going to need to adjust your life if you want to keep your job. Some of you, that sounds way too familiar. It's the spirit of Babylon incentivizing you. I want us to remember, Daniel not only survived, he thrived. He didn't just endure, he influenced. And how did he do it? He got to a point where he drew a line in the sand. He got to a point where he said, that's enough. I do not go any further than this. Like Daniel, 
You work in Babylon. You, you receive your pay from Babylon. You, you hang out amongst Babylonians, but there comes a point where you are going to have to say, I will not defile myself. I draw the line here. Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Don't miss this. He asked. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods, which stood in direct and stark contrast to what his Jewish law was telling him to do. Now, now it's so worth pointing this out. He did this respectfully. He did it in private. He, he, he didn't demand. He respectfully asked his superior. He, he, he thought about a plan ahead of time. He said, listen, I've come up for a way for, for me to stay true to my convictions and still keep things running smoothly around here. W would that be okay with you? I'll go to your school. I'll work your job. I'll take your salary. But, but I will not compromise my faithfulness to my God. I refuse your godless identity. And so here's my question for all of us today. Where is God asking you to draw a line? Remembering that as a follower of Christ, you work unto the Lord and not unto men. Listen, if you haven't already experienced this, I promise you that your day is coming. Where as a student, you'll say, I'll buy your textbooks, I'll pay your tuition, I'll sit in your lecture halls. But I'm drawing the line right here. Whereas a teacher, you say, I will love every kid that walks in my classroom. I'll treat every parent with love and respect. But, but I will not teach that. I draw the line here. Whereas an employee, you say, I will work hard for you. I, I will do everything I can, in fact, to, to, to earn this company even more money. I'll show up on time. I'll work hard. But I will draw the line here. And what's so amazing about this, and this is right where we're going to pick up next week, as soon as Daniel drew this line, that's right when God began to pick them up. Listen, the, the world is not asking you for surrender. It's asking you for compromise. Come on, you, you can hold on to 95% if you'll just move our direction, just this is little piece over here. But, but just as we see here in the life of Daniel, if you draw that line, if you refuse to compromise, God will undoubtedly lift you up. Where in your life are you compromising? Where are you claiming God but living Babylonian? Where is the God of the universe? Where right now is the Holy Spirit asking you to draw a line?